G'day Spuddies, welcome to the Spud Fit Podcast. It's uh, episode 8 coming up. Can't believe I've done 8 episodes already, but that's cool. Uh, this is episode the second episode in a series of episodes I got while I was away at the McDougal Advanced Study Weekend. Today we're talking to Kevin Hall, PhD. Before I get on to that though, this podcast is brought to you by me, as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, if you're interested in the work I do or you're interested in finding out more about my uh, how to do your own version of the Spud Fit Challenge, which I did last year, which was a year of eating only potatoes. You don't have to do a whole year, but any amount of time you might like to do. It might be a, a helpful thing for you to do. It might not. But anyway, there's a book that me and my wife wrote. It's called The DIY Spud Fit Challenge, a how-to guide to doing your own Spud Fit Challenge. You can find that at my website, www.spudfit.com, or you can search for that on Amazon and you can find it there too. Also, Starchy Marchy is coming to a close in a few days. You can still get involved though and uh, hashtag Starchy Marchy on all the social medias and you can... Uh, find out how to join the spud fit challenge group by uh checking out the website again spudfit.com if you want to get involved it's not over when starchy marchy finishes though it uh this is a continuing group it'll just keep on rolling on so get involved if you'd like to also if you uh, like what i'm doing then the best thing you can do for me is to share it with your friends uh share this podcast share my YouTube videos or social media posts or anything like that uh, and I'd be most grateful also if you could subscribe on iTunes and even leave a, a nice review there for me. Uh, that'd be most helpful. Now, today's guest, Kevin Hall, PhD, he was, like I said, a fellow speaker at the McDougal Advanced Study Weekend last month and, uh, and I was very lucky to not only to hear him speak, but then to get to sit down with him and have this uh, in-depth conversation. We, uh, we talked a lot about uh, the science that Kevin has produced, the studies that Kevin has produced, along with other people in his team at the National Institutes of Health. Uh, anyway, we, you can hear more about that anyway, but I'll just tell you a little bit about him. Uh, he's a researcher at the National Institute of Health. His research aims at gaining a better understanding of the complex mechanisms regulating macronutrient metabolism, body composition, and energy expenditure. He's involved in the development of mathematical models to quantitative, quantitatively ex dis uh, can't talk, describe, explain, and predict experimental results. So there you go. Uh, this is a... This is a really interesting conversation. It's a, it's a nutrition nerds conversation, a science nerds conversation. So if you want to get, uh, get down and dirty with, uh, with the science behind uh, macro, the macronutrients of fat and carbs and uh, in, if you're interested in uh, the differences between the two, then uh, listen on. Uh, I think this is a fascinating conversation with a fascinating bloke and, uh, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. All right, I had the, the great privilege to listen to Kevin Hall talk yesterday. <laughs> We've got a bit of an amateur set up here. <laughs> we just started the conversation for a few minutes and it didn't work. So here we are again. 
anyway, Kevin, can you? Uh, who is Kevin Hall? Yeah, Kevin. sure. So, um, so yeah, so I, I I'm a scientist at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, which is right next to Washington D.C. Interesting times in D.C. these days. And, yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> so. Um, so yeah, so I run a laboratory there that uh, studies obesity, uh, nutrition, metabolism, type 2 diabetes, and uh, we're really interested in better understanding how the human body responds to manipulations of, the, of diet in particular and uh, the composition of the diet in terms of macronutrients, carbohydrate, fat, and protein, as well as calorie content and, and uh, how the body adapts to those um, kinds of changes. And uh, we also build computer simulation models of, of the body and uh, the ability to, to make these sorts of adaptations to different diets and make predictions about new experiments and help put the data together in yeah. one sort of unifying place um, to kind of describe these processes. Yeah, cool. And I, f I find it so fascinating that uh, you can develop these mathematical models that are going to predict how uh, people will respond to different situations with food. Um, Obviously, nothing I could ever get my head around, <laughs> but I do enjoy hearing about it. Um, so you're a physics guy. So how do you go from physics to working on diet-related yeah, stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. It's not, it's not something I planned by any <laughs> stretch of the imagination. It's basically a set of circumstances. But um, when I was an undergraduate uh, physics student um, back in Canada... Uh, I was uh, looking for a job one summer, and uh, in a physiology lab was was um, was able to hire me, and I I hadn't taken any biology courses since since high school. All the, I was never really interested in biology. I was really primarily interested in physics, and but I I really got exposed to some very interesting work that was being done by this lab, uh, looking at electrical signals of cells, uh, something called electrophysiology, mm. and. Um, and it occurred to me that there was actually already a, 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 a branch of, of research in that area that was very quantitative. Um, in other words, they were making very detailed measurements, and they were actually able to describe them with mathematics, and they were building mathematical models. In fact, one of the uh, there was a Nobel Prize in, in physiology and medicine by uh, um, uh, Hodgkin and Huxley, who had developed these equations for how these electrical properties um, actually work inside cells yeah right and so i thought this was really cool i could kind of merge you know yeah, my mathematical training to do something in physiology which i found really fascinating and and so actually when i went to do my phd which was also in physics i was actually studying um, uh, different kinds of abnormal heart rhythms and so I'd started to kind of merge this physiology and physics together and try to better describe, you know, what generates the normal heart rhythm, what kinds of changes occur to generate abnormal heart rhythms, and how do you describe that with mathematics? And actually, can you use any of those insights to perhaps design uh, pacemaker algorithms to help control abnormal rhythms? So. It was, uh, I published most of the work, probably half of those papers were in physics journals, the other half were in cardiac uh, electrophysiology journals, and so it was a kind of nice merger of these two areas. And then after I finished my PhD, I kind of decided I didn't want to do a postdoc because postdocs get paid very little money, yeah. and um, <laughs> they still don't have independence, they have to do what their supervisor yeah. is interested in. 
and that happened to be during the dot-com boom in uh, Silicon oh, yeah. Valley, and, yeah. and there was a lot of... So you've been doing this a while now, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so th- that was, I guess, 1999. I graduated yeah. with my PhD in physics, and I got um, hired by this little biotech startup um, in, uh, in Menlo Park, California, and I was given the task of leading a group to develop a computer simulation model of type 2 diabetes, and I... Oh, wow. And I didn't know what type 2 diabetes was yeah. <laughs> it's like okay uh sure um but they said you know don't worry we're going to hire other you know experts with in, with the endocrine physiology background yeah. and we'll bring in consultants and you're going to work with this drug company who's interested in partnering with us and and so the next several years i led this program and basically learned you know a lot about the physiology of how we regulate glucose and fat and and then amino acid levels in our blood and where those fuels go and how they're burned and how they're stored and what the hormones involved are and, and developing a model of, of that process. And so that was great. It was a fantastic experience being at this little um, company and, and giving presentations to all these drug companies about why yeah. they should, why they should, you know, hire us to help support yeah. their research. And, but I'd been there for four years and hadn't published a single paper, which in oh, right. academic yeah. circles is our currency. So that's yeah. that's a real deficit. And so um, I decided I had to make the transition to something more um, more academic. And yeah. fortunately, I, I started my position at the NIH, uh, I guess, uh, back in 2003. So yeah. I've been there for 13 plus yeah. years now. Yeah. Cool. That's so interesting. That it's amazing the the different directions life can take. Yeah, you couldn't have planned that. I guess. Yeah. It's like, well, first you do this, then you change your mind and do this, yeah. then you change your mind and do this. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. But so, why why do you do what you do now these days? Why why is it important? Yeah. So I mean, well, there's the, there's actually two answers to um, to yeah. that question. One is I I, I do believe it's really important, yeah. but to be perfectly honest, I do it for completely selfish reasons. Yeah. That is, I'm very curious about how this system works and, yeah. and very curious about understanding it. And yes, I think that our research can help people and can inform um, uh, better policy and better, uh, better information about how people can eat. But that's not, I don't feel that that part is my job. My job is to do the science and do it well. <coughs> And, and really just try to get to the truth of the matter and, and investigate uh, in the most rigorous fashion possible um, you know, what happens inside the body when we test different kinds of diets and, and, uh, and ha- are these claims that are often being made um, to support diet A versus diet B, how, you know, how well-founded are they? Can yeah. we really test them? And so that's, that's kind of the reason that I do what I do, but yeah. I think you know, it's also gives me some satisfaction to think yeah. that people find this interesting and important and informative for, um, you know, issues that are facing the world now of, of the increasing obesity and type two diabetes prevalence yeah. and, and what we can do about it. Yeah, definitely. It's real. Uh, it's really important that we can substantiate all these claims that get thrown around, but I also love that you, you do it for some selfish reasons. Absolutely. That you enjoy <laughs> it. And I think that's important because you, I don't think anyone ever would do a the best job that they can if they didn't actually enjoy what they were doing so yeah, of I course agree. you should enjoy it yeah <laughs> all right let's let's uh move on to some studies that you talk okay about sure and so i was really interested in the what you your work on the biggest loser oh, right, study yeah. uh where well you can talk about it i don't need to talk about it <laughs> sure yeah so um 
So yeah, so back back when I was uh, starting uh, my lab, and I, I have to admit, I, I have a little bit of a of a of a uh, an addiction to reality TV. I guess I did have an addiction to reality yeah, TV. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. And I used to love watching The Biggest Loser. Oh, is that right? Back when I was a lot bigger than yeah. I am now, I would watch that and dream about <laughs> being able to do it myself. Right, sure. <laughs> I no, it. I can understand that. And and so one day I was I was watching this program for the first time and, and you know, I'd been on for several seasons, but um, it was like the, really the first time I'd, I'd caught any of it. And it was actually the finale part of this, um, not finale, but the final part of the program. I didn't see the whole thing. And I saw these people stepping on scales and being informed, oh, you lost 13 pounds this week, or you lost... You Massive. Know. Yeah, and, and you know, I knew from my research how that didn't seem to make a lot of sense, you know, because typically people don't lose that much weight yeah. that quickly. And so I didn't really understand what was going on, and, you know, so I made sure to tune in and watch the full you know, hour long episode the next week. And, um, you know, it wasn't that much more informative for my questions. I saw people getting yelled at working <laughs> out in gyms, but, yeah. um, I couldn't tell what they were eating or how much they were eating. I guess it doesn't make for very good TV to show people not eating. Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that, they can't yeah. really document that very well. Yeah. And so I, I, I finally got in touch with, um, the uh, uh, the medical director of that program, the person who's responsible for the care of these folks, and and I started asking him some questions about you know what's 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 going on here with this rapid weight loss? Like how do you lose twelve pounds in a week? And actually, the first thing he told me was, well, actually, a week of television time is not a week of real time. Oh, so, okay. So so you know some days, some weeks that'll be twelve days. Other other weeks All it right. might only be nine or. Or, or, or six days or something like that. It varies because of the shooting schedule. It's yeah, not really seven days. And it's that's like, okay. something I never would have thought well, of. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and so, but of course, he knows exactly when the time points were and he was making that's the really official measurements. Obviously, I was a fan of the show, like yes. I said. And you, it's crazy the fluctuations in weight loss as well. When right. you'd think that they'd typically be eating close enough to the same amount each week and the same amount of exercise. So you would think that it would be a linear and equation, but with them, like some weeks it's 10 pounds, some weeks right. it's three. So right. I guess that difference in length that, between that, them that explains some of it. Most of that variability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and, and so, so yeah, so I had other questions then. It's like, okay, well that explains some of the variability and mm. why, you know, some of the weight loss seems just, completely unbelievable yeah but um still on average these folks are losing a huge amount of weight yeah. very quickly and so that didn't answer other questions like well we know that they're working out a lot but um you know how many calories are they burning when they're working out and um, or throughout the day even during um, periods where they're where they're not working out and yeah because you're even burning calories while you're sleeping yeah like, of course yeah, yeah not everybody probably knows that but yeah you're constantly burning calories exactly you're just burning more when you're exercising that's all exactly and yeah. for most people who aren't participating in such programs like the biggest loser most of your calories are burned um, just basically keeping you alive yeah um, physical activity is typically maybe 20 to 30 percent of the total calories that, oh, that's you're, all. All that right. you burn so yeah. something like 60 to 70 percent is coming just from resting 
yeah. metabolic rate. Yeah. I guess those percentages change for the biggest losers. Oh, exactly. Though, yeah. So when they yeah. start working out like crazy, then of course their their resting metabolic rate, as we found, actually slowed down quite yeah. a lot. And but their physical activity calories goes up. Yeah, for obvious reasons. But um, yeah. So so he didn't know. He didn't have any measurements of, of their metabolic rate, both either at rest or, or their total calories that they were being burned. But he did have access to very sophisticated methods to measure body composition. In other words, how much body fat um, is, is, uh, is changing versus lean tissue, for example. And so we decided to um, partner with another group um, at the Pennington Biomedical Research Center to send a couple of postdoctoral fellows out to Malibu, California to make some detailed measurements on these, on these folks before they participated in the program, during the weight loss intervention, and then at the very end. And then subsequently, we brought them back to the NIH uh, six years later to do repeat measurements after to see what had happened to them since, since all of the coverage had gone away and you know they weren't in the yeah. spotlight anymore so it's really interesting too because obviously the show stops following them when the show finishes so nobody really knows what happens well until now nobody really knows what happens after that so right yeah really interesting yeah so it was it was a it was a very interesting um study and you know we, we found some very um fascinating things about how metabolism is changing as people lose weight and what happens when they regain weight and and um and yeah, so it was a it was a very interesting study, and of course I was using it again partly for selfish reasons to see how our mathematical model was holding up, and and it worked very well during the weight loss phase of the competition, um, and less well during the regain part. So yeah. what we were are still unable to explain is that somehow you know we expected some degree of reduction in metabolic rate, the number of calories they were burning at rest when they're losing weight. And we saw that, and it's it's you know they have this pretty m remarkable slowdown of metabolism, so that they were burning at the end of this competition about 600 calories a day less yeah, that's than they were at the beginning. Um, and part of that is expected because of you know they're smaller people at the yeah. end, but there's still an unexplained piece, something we call metabolic adaptation, which yeah. is um, a few hundred calories. So roughly half of that was still unexplained. It's quite significant a number of calories if it was like. 10 or 20, it would be Yeah, like, who, who cares, cares right? Yeah. Exactly, but it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, several hundred. And our model is actually able to explain part of that. Um, well, it could, it could explain all of the reduction of calories during the weight loss phase. But we would have predicted, and the model predicts, that if you regain some of that weight, and six years later these folks had regained two-thirds of the weight that they'd lost, which is not unusual yeah. for people who who have participated in a, some, some degree of weight loss in yeah. the past, um, we'd expect their metabolic rate to go up, right? They're bigger people. Yeah, yeah. They're no longer in an active state of weight loss. They're not, you know, cutting their calories to a huge degree. And the surprise and still the mystery is their metabolic rate was still depressed by that 600 calories a day. Yeah on average, which I still have no explanation for, which is fascinating. Yeah, well, that was my next question. Why do you think it is? Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah I guess. I wish I knew the answer. Maybe um, maybe you'll come up with that in your career. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. I mean, one of the things that we, when we saw this and we were so surprised by it, we, we thought, gosh, this, this can't be real. We must have made some mistake somewhere. We started looking for any possible reason why this, this could be wrong. And one of the things that we noticed was that, well, we used actually different machines to measure 
these things when oh, they yeah. were in California versus when they came back to the NIH. Now yeah. they're calibrated and they should be this measuring the same thing. Yeah. But we ended up finding the original machine, shipping it to the NIH <laughs> and like testing it in a very detailed way to see if that could possibly explain the difference. Yeah. Not, not even close. Oh, so, right. so yeah, so, so it didn't leave any stone on. No, we were, we were very meticulous. In yeah. fact, I wanted to make this go away because I didn't understand yeah, what it yeah. was. Right. But the data are what the data are. And so you have to, you have to go with, with where that leads you. And yeah. sometimes it leads you to mysteries that you can't explain. And this is one of them. Yeah. That's one of the great things about science. I yeah, think is, absolutely. Uh, obviously, you know, a lot more than me, but I, I, in my research that I haven't done actual research like you, I've just read the papers, right. but, but yeah, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Right. And, and yeah, it's, it's, you could go on forever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so over the course of my year of eating only potatoes, I had a lot of mail from, uh, low carb kind of people that said I would have been better off eating only bacon than potatoes and uh-huh. things like that. And you know, you're better off eating more fat and whatever. And, I wasn't really interested in debating that. I'm just, that's not the whole point. This weight loss and health thing wasn't really the whole point. But anyway, I'm getting somewhere with this. You <laughs> went on and studied uh, the differences between a, high, a higher fat intake and a higher carbohydrate intake. Uh, and that was a very interesting part of your talk. So I'd like to talk more about that. It's the first one you did, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you did a metabolic ward study with uh for two weeks yeah so there's a so. pair of two week periods um yeah. where we uh, oh sorry first of all can yeah, you explain what metabolic meta- ward yeah. study yeah. yeah so so let me yeah so a metabolic ward yeah. study basically means that we bring people into um some setting where we feed them all of their food they're not allowed to have access to outside food they can't really leave without violating the study and um, they're basically there and we can make all of these measurements on what happens to their metabolic rate and and how much carbs versus fat they're burning and how much fat they're losing etc etc so it's a way of addressing the biggest problem with nutrition right now which is that um, when people are going about their daily lives researchers actually don't have good tools to measure exactly what they're eating Um, you know uh, epidemiologists, people who look at, you know, lar- very large populations of people can get some useful information by asking people, you know, um, to fill in detailed reports about what they ate in the last 24 hours or how frequently they ate certain kinds of foods. Um, and that provides very useful information about patterns of their diet yeah. and whatnot, but it doesn't provide at an individual level, a really quantitative estimate yeah, of you what they're sure. actually... Yeah, exactly. If you got me to do that survey, there would have been days where I wasn't sure if I had 13 cookies or 15. Right, like, right. I suppose <laughs> when you important. I, I suppose when you eat only potatoes, it makes it a little easier, yeah. right? You know, how many potatoes was it today? Yeah, how many yeah. pounds? Was, yeah, so, so... But most people don't eat just one thing, so it yeah. becomes very difficult for them to, to, to figure this out. And... Um, and people tend to underreport. So yeah. we have very expensive methods that can be used um, in small numbers of people to estimate, for example, how many calories they're eating. Um, but uh, but those are very expensive, and and again, we don't have control over what they're eating. We just yeah. get, after the fact can measure those things. Yeah. So that's the reason why we have to bring people into these uh, metabolic wards and and provide them with all of their foods the foods that we're providing them with, we know more detail about what's in them 
uh, compared to, you know, uh, people self-selecting their foods from normal yeah. sources. And in fact, we chemically analyze all yeah. of the foods and oh, whatnot, really? so we know exactly what's yeah. in them. Um, Did you get a lot of complaints from the study participants? Are there people that are unhappy with your cooking skills? Yeah. Or like <laughs> well, fortunately, I'm yeah. not the one doing the cooking. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and for the first for the first experiment that we did, um, which was published in 2015, uh, it was a very well maybe not compared to a potato diet, but it was yeah. a very monotonous diet. They yeah. ate the same breakfast every day, the same lunch every day, the same dinner every day. Yeah. And so from that perspective, we got some complaints. But we knew that people would stick to these diets because we had a screening process where they had to eat them all, all oh, these yeah. foods in advance, and they had to agree, yeah, okay, I can eat these foods. There's going to be no surprises. They're not going to tell us they're allergic to something or they're having yeah. some problems with eating um, whatever we provided yeah, right. to them. So, so we knew in advance that they would be able to, to handle this. Yep. And, and so those were the kind of typical complaints was like, if I have to see that sandwich <laughs> one more time, you know, yeah. <laughs> not, not pleased by this. Yeah. Uh, then, um, so yeah, so that's, that's, uh, that's what that study looked like for the second study. We'll talk about later. We actually had a seven day rotating menu. Oh, yeah. It was a little bit more, a uh, little bit more friendly because they were staying for uh, two months as opposed yeah, to, you got to make more of an effort to keep them happy that exactly, way. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the, the first study that we did was a pair of two-week periods where they came in and then they went home in between. And um, we, we did an intervention which surprisingly had never been done before. So, um, you know, when we were building these models, we actually always look to the literature and make sure that we've got, uh, we, we can explain the kinds of data that have been, um, that have been uh, derived with our models and make predictions about new experiments. And one of the ones that had never been done was to compare what happens when you just cut carbs from somebody's diet, causing obviously if you're cutting something, you're creating a calorie deficit, um, versus cutting the same number of calories from fat. Um, so you keep the other two nutrients, um, protein and either carbs or fat, depending on, on which one you're, yeah. you're changing, it's constant. All so interesting because there's all this talk about no, not all calories are equal. And right. You know, fats are better than carbs or carbs are better than fats or whatever. And it's just so interesting that you can have this level of control and really get down to measuring what's what. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that was the goal, right, was to mm. see, you know, how does the body respond when you just cut carbs versus just cutting fat by the same number of calories? Does it somehow adapt in a way that makes it practically being a calorie is a calorie, right? So that... Mm. The physiology is changing a lot, but at the end of the day, the fat loss might be very similar between those two diets. Yeah, yeah. Um, others have argued that no, you know, cutting carbs should be more beneficial for for fat loss than cutting fat. Others have argued the opposite. Yeah. Um, but all of the past studies had been confounded by this idea that you're not just changing one thing. You know, you if you put somebody on a a low carb diet, typically they also you know increase protein a little bit and and they, they've uh, increased fat uh, as opposed to just decreasing carbs. And if you put people on a low-fat diet, so you, they often tend yeah. to reduce um, carbs and maybe a little bit of protein as well. So, yeah. um, so this study avoided those, those issues. And because they were on metabolic wards, and we had, um, luckily at the National Institutes of Health, we have these very fancy tools, yeah. like uh, these rooms where people can live in. And we measure on a minute-to-minute -minute basis how much oxygen they're consuming and how yeah, much incredible. carbon dioxide they're producing. And yeah. by um, taking those measurements, we can actually figure out uh, the total number of calories that they're burning, as well as how many 
of those calories uh, are coming from burning fat versus carbs, for example. Yeah. And you collect those, you said something about uh, collecting all the urine as well and even yeah. testing all of that. that right. It's just right. amazing the level of detail you go to. No, exactly. And they, those urine measurements are important because um, what we're measuring is nitrogen in urine. And nitrogen only comes from amino acids, which are building blocks of protein. And so by measuring how much is in the urine, you're basically measuring how much um, protein is being burned or yeah. utilized in some way. So, um, so yeah, so the, the results of that study, I thought were very interesting and were actually, uh, predicted in advance by our mathematical model. So we, yeah. we said, here's the primary thing that we're interested in is how the body shifts, which fuels are being burned. Yeah. And the unsurprising part, um, about that prediction was that we, you know, realized that if you cut carbs from your diet, um, the amount of insulin that's being secreted should go down because, you know, carbohydrates in the diet are going to drive um, the pancreas to make insulin. Yeah. And we saw that. So that wasn't a surprise. And so as a result of that lower insulin, the fat cells should um, should release more fat into the circulation and it yeah. should increase the amount of fat that's getting burned. And we saw that and the model predicted that that goes up and sort of plateaus within that that, that week um, of that diet. And what was interesting from my perspective and the real reason that we designed the study was that the model made an interesting prediction about what happens when you cut fat from the diet. Um, it said that, well, you know, nothing should happen to insulin secretion because dietary yeah. fat per se doesn't really stimulate insulin yeah. secretion. Um, and therefore, almost nothing should happen to the amount of fat that's being burned. Yeah. It's like people taking a stick of butter out of their daily diet and the body not even noticing. It just yeah. says, oh, I'll just keep burning the same amount of fat. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I kind of half didn't believe that that would happen. That's kind of the purpose of doing these experiments is you want to prove you either get the model is right, in which case you get some satisfaction, you kind of understand the yeah. system, or the model's wrong and you get the opportunity to discover something new, kind of like yeah, what we talked about yeah. on the biggest loser ex example. So I kind of figured that the body wasn't quite going to just do nothing. I thought that, you know, maybe what would happen is that if you cut fat from people's diets, that they would start burning a little less fat. Yeah. And, and so I was, it makes sense to think that way. I yeah, think, exactly. Yeah. You're yeah. sort of adapting to the yeah. fuels in this way. So I was kind of countering my own models yeah. <laughs> prediction. I was like, well, if the model's right, I built the model. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can count it as a win. If the model's wrong, that's okay. I can count it as a win because I sort of predicted the model might be wrong yeah, and, that's okay. and I get to learn something. Yeah. So I like to do experiments where regardless of the result, I'm, you know, it's interesting. And yeah, it's and all about learning. Exactly. Either way you're learning. Right. So <laughs> in this case, the model was right. So yeah. nothing happened to the amount of uh, fat um, calories that were being burned. Yeah. And so then that translated to the issue of, okay, well, if I'm eating the same amount of fat in the um, reduced carb case and I'm burning more fat because I'm switching to more fat metabolism, mm. then I've got to be losing fat from the diet, uh, yeah. fr from the body, sorry. Because yeah. uh, I've got a certain amount coming in, a certain amount going out, those are unbalanced, I've got yeah. to be losing fat. In the other case, I'm also losing fat, right? Because now I've cut the fat coming into the body, but I'm burning the same amount. And yeah. the question was, which one led to more fat loss yeah. or were, was it equivalent? And these were the same people. So it wasn't like I took one group and put them yeah. on diet A versus diet B. We just randomized the order. They came in on both occasions and 
they all consume both of these diets. Yeah. And what was interesting was that um, contrary to the predictions of the, the low carb folks who suggested that, you know, by reducing insulin and, and keeping carbohydrates low, that you should have some preferential loss of body fat. Yeah. Um, we actually found uh, very significantly from a statistical perspective, the opposite result. So the reduced yeah. fat diet led to more fat loss. But this, we're talking about really, really tiny changes. Yeah. Things that, you know, would be impossible to measure in other sort yeah. of environments. And so our conclusion basically was that we can definitively say that you certainly don't have to cut carbs yeah. and reduce <laughs> insulin to yeah. lose fat. We can yeah. just rule that out entirely. And that yeah. was one of the claims that was being made by proponents of these low-carb diets. Um, but I also wasn't going to go on the record of saying, you know, that this is some clinically meaningful that people should all be on low fat diets yeah. because you're losing more fat. It's a very tiny effects. And in fact, one of the things that we did was because the model was successful at predicting these short term experiments and because it had been built using some other data on longer term studies, we just decided to run out the model simulations over six months. Yeah. What if we could have done this study for six months and we'd kept these people in these metabolic wards? What yeah. would be the differences in fat loss after six months? And it was something pretty tiny, like two kilos. Okay, so not that much. Yeah, Not much. And so our conclusion was that basically the body just does a really good job of adapting its physiology such that the amount of fat that you lose is primarily dependent on the calorie cutting. Yeah. Um, the physiology underlying that can be very different. Um, you know, how much fat is being burned, what's going on with insulin, that sort yeah. of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's just doing a really good job of making it practically like a calorie is a calorie. Yeah, okay. Doesn't mean that the health consequences are necessarily the same. Yeah, that's what we're interested, obviously, in. Right. There's going to be different health consequences to a high-fat diet compared to a no, high-carbohydrate diet. That's very likely, yeah. Where, where you're just specifically looking at fat loss. Fat loss and, and the yeah. number of calories that are being burned. Yeah, because so you're, you're not... You're not measuring whether someone's going to develop diabetes in the long term. Exactly. the diet or things like that. That's right. Do you, I'm interested, do you know, um, I guess you probably do know, maybe not off the top of your head, but what the uh, macronutrient uh, percentages were, like so exactly how much, what percentage of the diet was protein, fat, and carbohydrates in y each of the yeah, I'm, groups? Yeah, you'll have to check it out in detail, but if I recall correctly, something like 20% was from protein. Yeah. Um, during the deficit. So it, it's basically since we kept protein constant and we yeah. cut 30% of calories, it started out at 15% protein, but then since we cut yeah. carbs okay. versus fat, that goes up as a percentage. Yeah. But in absolute quantity, it was constant. Yeah. Um, the low-carb diet ended up being, I believe, 29% carbs. Yeah. The low-fat diet ended up being 7% fat. Okay. Um, and so the, obviously the difference is, yeah. is the alternate uh, fuel. So one of the arguments from the low carb folks was, well, wait a second, you got to 7% fat, but only 29% yeah. carbs. Yeah. That's because we started off with a pretty standard American diet of 50% yeah. carbs and 35% 30, uh, fat and 15% yeah. protein. So if you're cutting the same number of calories and you're starting off at different baselines, then yeah. you're obviously going to end up with different percentages. Yeah, yeah. And, um, so, so yeah, so that was the, that was the ratio that yeah. we ended up looking and, at. And what kind of foods were, were, it, were you using like any kind of meal replacement shakes or was it no, just No, it's nothing like, like that. It was all yeah. real foods. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, I'd have to go back and look at the detailed composition, but. Oh, we don't need like yeah. individual ingredients, right, but no, you're right. using real, 
Whole real foods. foods. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. All right. So then, like you said, there's uh, people complaining about uh, the not doing it properly, what they consider to be properly, whether you know you didn't get the fat low enough or the carbohydrates low enough or whatever it was. And uh, I remember reading about this, but I didn't know as much until I heard you heard you speak. But I remember reading about uh, Gary Taub's involvement in funding a study that. Uh, when I read it, he said it was going to prove everything that he <laughs> believed, and uh, and then I <coughs> I forgot about it from then on until right. I heard you speak. But um, yeah, so I'm interested in in the next study that he was and others, I guess, were involved in funding the the bigger, right. essentially like the the big brother of the study we just talked about. Yeah. So um, yeah. So it's interesting. I I'd uh, I'd met Gary when he came to give a presentation at the NIH and I was in the audience and I had some comments for some inaccuracies that he had regarding specific biochemistry. And it was, you know, very, you know, in the weeds, we won't talk about that, but I got the chance to chat with him afterwards. And I told him about the study that I I just, we just discussed, which was ongoing. And I, I said, you know, what would be your prediction for the result of this? I mean, do you really think that the, the reduced carb, group is the only one that's going to lose fat um if if it turns out that that's the only one that decreases insulin and he thought about it and said well you know if it's if calories don't really matter it's really the insulin then yeah i think that that's right and so it turned out that it wasn't right but um but he was interested in in a, a much different experiment he wasn't really interested in you know cutting a lot of calories from people's diets he was interested in why people get fat so um and so he was also interested in, in seeing, you know, perhaps larger effects of very low carbohydrate diets. So, so it's something called ketogenic diets. Yeah. And, um, so we, we chatted about that then, but you know, we sort of parted ways and, and then I probably about a year or, or so later, um, I got a call from somebody from the, uh, Laura and John Arnold foundation who were considering, sponsoring this new initiative called the nutrition sciences initiative which was um being proposed by gary taubes and peter atia at the time okay and just saying you know what do you think of this peter atia is another low carb sort of guy um you know he definitely leans that direction i would say he's he's a little more (laughs) open-minded than gary was um but the point was is that they had some genuine questions about you know the quality of nutrition science of Really Are these guys scientists or well, or? Peter? So Peter is a, he he um, he's a, a former surgeon, surgical resident. Okay. He uh, did a postdoctoral fellowship at the National Cancer Institute, yeah. um, which was one of the members of the NIH. So yeah. he definitely has some some scientific and medical yeah. training. So he's a he's a physician. Yeah. Um, uh, but I don't think he has ever conducted his own research studies or he probably knows a bit about science oh he certainly knows a lot about science and and gary knows a lot about science too um but uh but they were very they're very interested and i i applaud them for this they're really interested in better better studies to to answer very specific questions and and so um as a result they were successful at getting funding from this um the the laura and john arnold foundation who are committed to improving scientific research in general and nutrition research in particular. And they got together um, with, uh, they, they asked me to, to uh, join a group 
to start to address some of these questions. And so we had a consortium, we called it the Energy Balance Consortium, yeah. with other researchers at Columbia University, uh, the Peddington Biomedical Research Center, and the Translational Research Institute um, in uh, Orlando. And so uh, we got this group together and we said, okay, well, we want to address some of these questions. And what we decided to do was instead of starting off with like the f a full, huge, you know, tens of millions of dollar study, what we said was, look, let's get a group of relatively similar people. Mm -hmm. um, let's feed them the most extreme diet that we can think of. And let's get an idea of whether or not there's this effect on on the number of calories that they're burning on this ketogenic diets. Because yeah. for, for decades, people have talked about how if you just get to this ketogenic state, you might have these metabolic advantages of increasing the number of calories that are being burned and, yeah. and really ex, you know, accelerating how much fat you're losing, almost regardless of the calories that you're eating, right? So you could potentially yeah. even eat more calories on one of these ketogenic diets and still lose fat. And the only way that can happen is if the number of calories that you're burning is also going up because you can't violate yeah, yeah. the laws of physics. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and so we got this group together and we kind of sat in the room for on multiple meetings with Gary and, um, and, and Peter and, and other members of their scientific advisory board. And we said, okay, we're going to start off with this, what we call the pilot study and then just only men, um, very narrow range of, of body mass indices so not they're overweight and and only mildly uh, have only mild obesity yeah um, we will make them as similar as possible and we're gonna just run them in on a standard American diet with you know 25% of calories from sugar um, just make it look as yeah. typically representative and then we'll switch them to this ketogenic diet and we'll measure and are using our very precise technology, how many calories are burning. That yeah. was the main thing. And secondarily, um, you know, what's happening to body fat. Yeah. So, so that study was funded. Um, and we, that must have been exciting to get that funding to do this amazing study that had never been done before. Yeah, no, yeah. it was, it was, it was, so was, I think it was probably more exciting for the folks on the outside of the okay, NIH because yeah. we get our funding all mostly internally and okay, we certainly yeah. got some additional funding to do this. But, yeah. you know, for the most part, we, we have the ability to do these kinds of studies ourselves. Yeah. Okay. It just yeah. takes a lot longer. We, yeah. And we were able to now add three other sites so that oh, yeah. um, basically we could do the study in, in you know, a, a quarter of the time that it would yeah, normally right. take. Yeah. And so from that perspective, things move much more quickly than they would have yeah. otherwise. And I got to work with this other group of people who I'd not directly worked with before. And it was a wonderful yeah. educational experience. Um, so yeah, so we ended up doing the study. We completed it in 17 of these men and, um, and what we found, and actually just as a very, very brief aside, why did we choose 17 men? I think is yeah. an important question, yeah, okay. right? Cause some people will say, well, unless it's in like a thousand subjects, yeah. I can't believe any of it. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, the way you do these things is you say, um, how many subjects am I going to need to detect an effect of a certain size? Yeah. Right. So obviously, if you have a really small effect, you're going to need lots of subjects to yeah. see this because every one of them has some variability. The measurements aren't perfect as good as they are. And so you have to decide in advance 
what your likelihood of seeing an effect is. And you want to make that effect something that's going to be physiologically relevant, something significant. And so one of the things that we all decided on for various reasons, and it's in the protocol, which was pre-registered and online, is that we would only consider an effect of 150 calories a day to be meaningful. Okay. Um, And so... That led us to 16 subjects. We added one more just in case there was somebody who dropped out of the study. Everybody completed it. And um, and that kind of set us up, that the bar was set at 150 calories a day yeah. as being something physiologically important. And so what did we find? We, well, we basically found that the change in energy expenditure um, between the last day on this normal standard American diet and the last day of the ketogenic diet was not at all statistically significant. And that was what we'd planned on initially. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then we said, okay, well, it's not really fair. We, we're not going to end with our conclusion that there's nothing significant here. We're, we actually have all these, we, th- these folks didn't just stay in these, these chambers to measure their energy expenditure at, on those two occasions. We, they actually did it um, two days a week, every week. Okay. So, um, you know, we could Is have that said like two, like a forty-eight hour straight. Pretty much, with half an hour to to get out and shower. Yeah. Okay. And then yeah. hop back in again. So. Yeah. We originally planned the study to, de- to detect one hundred and fifty calories a day effect size on the last two days of the standard American diet and the last two days of the uh, ketogenic diet. Yeah. Um, and said, you know, that we need sixteen people to detect one hundred and fifty calories. Did we detect it? No. We yeah. could have just ended it there because that's what we'd pre-planned. But we said, no, it's not fair. Let's look at all the data yeah. um, for this primary endpoint. And we saw that, in fact, what seemed to happen was that there was a slight bump up in the number of calories that they were eating right in the first week of transitioning to the ketogenic diet yeah. um, of about 100 calories a day. Okay. And then that sort of declined over time. Yeah. So that on average, when you took all the data as a whole... Um, we detect, we were able to detect a much smaller size of about 57 calories a day on average. Okay. Now, not that much. It's not that much, right? Yeah. This is, this is, what these would are that tiny. be like over the course of a year, 57 calories a day? What, what sort of weight well, loss are you? Well, if you're, about? if you don't have any additional, um, changes, yeah. it's, it can amount to something. Yeah, if these guys right? lived in your metabolic right. ward for a year. Well, what, not what only that, but if they, yeah. I mean, one of the things that we know is as they lose weight, they'll also decrease the number of calories that they're burning yeah. on very long time scales, like yeah. a year, but over short time scales, it won't change that much. Okay. But, um, but so it's hard to make those extrapolations. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What I would guess is that 57 calories, if you, of, of increased energy expenditure, over the course of several years yeah. would amount to a, a, a steady um, body weight, uh, a loss of something like, I would say maybe 10 pounds at most. Oh, okay. So okay. not much at all. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of like after several years. Yeah. That's a, that's a long time. Yeah. If it was 10 pounds in a month, then yes. you got something. Then you got something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, when we looked at the fat loss, um, so these folks were losing weight slightly um, during this this uh, this experiment, which was a little bit of a surprise, and we can talk about that if you want. But um, so they were losing weight in the last two weeks of the standard American diet. They lost half a kilo of fat. Yeah. Um, and then, as we transitioned them to the ketogenic diet, despite the slight increase in energy expenditure, the rate of fat loss actually slowed down. 
Um, okay. So it took that is interesting. Yeah. So again, kind of counter to the to the usual hypothesis of a yeah. very low carb ketogenic diet. And what we found was that by measuring, like we mentioned before, um, their urine and how much nitrogen was being excreted in their urine, it looks like that they were increasing how much protein they were using in the first couple of weeks. And that yeah. sort of makes sense because you want to make some glucose out of the out of the protein that is available um, in order to um, in order to uh, generate glucose for yeah. the body because you're not eating any carbs anymore. Yeah. And so we saw this slight bump up in the amount of protein that's lost that kind of translates since we didn't change how much protein was going in uh, to the body. Uh, that means that they lost some lean tissue yeah, okay. as a result. Not much, but that we think that that sort of offset the fat loss for yeah. a brief period of time. And then it picked up to near normal by yeah. the end. Um, so again, not the direction that would be predicted by a very low carb um, yeah. diet. But um, again, almost like a calorie is a calorie in terms of yeah. the fat loss. So how is it that then there are so many people that say that this ketogenic diet is great for weight loss? Is that because they, <laughs> without trying to, uh, are somehow cutting calories at the same time as they take up this diet? Well, or that, or that's certainly that a reasonable hypothesis. Yeah. And a lot of people will claim. So I, I've seen two, sort, two sets of responses to our study results. One is that, um, well, of course, you know, it's all about the appetite and it's about appetite regulation. Nobody really thought it was about the calories. And yeah. it's not really true. People did think it yeah, was yeah. <laughs> the of calories they, they were yeah. expending. And these studies kind of show that those there's effects a, are I very... I can't remember who wrote it, but there's a, a book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. Of yeah, course it's about the calories. <laughs> well, that's Gary Taubes. But, <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, right. but, um, but you know, the, the, the point is, is that we thought... You know, this our studies kind of suggest that if there is this effect, and actually there is, if you just prescribe people or even provide them with the food and they go off and do it their own, um, people who are prescribed a very low carbohydrate diet over the first few months at least tend to lose more fat than people who are prescribed a low fat diet. Yeah, There's, that's been demonstrated over and over again. The yeah. question was how much of that was because of some sort of metabolic advantage, the yeah. things that we were studying versus spontaneously decreasing the number of calories that they're eating. Yeah. Um, so what you're hypothesizing is perfectly reasonable. It's yeah. mostly due to how many calories they're spontaneously decreasing, whether yeah. or not that means that they're bored of the diet or, yeah. or they're less hungry. Um, who knows what yeah. it is. Um, another possibility which can't be ruled out definitively but one that's been promoted is that well we just didn't do the studies long enough yeah if we'd waited an extra week or two we might have seen this turn around yeah. and somehow they'd be increasing their energy expenditure even more and we'd somehow probably get that no matter how long right. you get it for you just needed an extra week and right. i would have been right right <laughs> well in some sense you could limit yeah. it right you could yeah. say if you did a the three to six month inpatient study in these yeah. metabolic wars, because that's where all of the effect is seen with these yeah. low carb diets. So you can limit it to some extent, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, good luck finding someone I, who wants to live in a metabolic ward for, for six, six months. months. <laughs> no, exactly. So, so I can't rule it out definitively, but what I always ask is, well, please describe to me what the known physiology is that could possibly explain that because yeah. all of the, the basis of these, low carb diets have been based on insulin's effects which we know occur you know within a week 
they've sort of reached their maximum. And we see these very rapid changes. Like I saw most, like I said, most of the changes that we see happen in the first week. And if anything, they're dissipating over that period of time, right? I told you energy yeah. expenditure goes up for the first week and then it starts to go down so that by the end of the month, it's actually not significantly different than it was beforehand. Um, so th that sort of physiological mechanism has not been well described to me and I don't know what it is, but of yeah. course I can never definitively rule it out. Yeah. Well, not until you've done some study. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I, I'm sure what well, you said on stage, but uh, before that I, I would have already been sure that you got some hate mail and some blowback oh, for, yeah. for your work. So what can you tell us something about that? <laughs> Uh, sure. I mean, it's been fascinating, right? I've, it's it's ranged all the way from the usual kind of Twitter and and uh, <laughs> social <Yeah>. media <laughs> commentary um, and blogs and whatnot to uh, actually what I had considered to be reputable scientists who have written to my institute director at sometimes suggesting that I made this data up or something like that. So consider you know it's it's ranged all the way um, yeah. to that extreme yeah right um and i and honestly i it's 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 been fascinating i yeah. mean um i'm not the kind of person who gets rattled by those yeah. sorts of things yeah. <laughs> and i'm not in the sort of position thankfully at the nih where i have anything to do with policy or yeah. anything to do with recommending what people should eat yeah and i basically present these data as they are and and my honest interpretation of what they mean and um, I was, I'm a little surprised that there haven't been more folks um, in the low-carb community especially who've kind of taken the data to, and said, okay, well, this is kind of interesting. What this, I'm going to incorporate this new information yeah. in a way that, that basically doesn't say that my way of thinking is wrong, but it basically just augments it, right? Yeah, so, for yeah. example, you could say, oh, well, yeah, maybe um, the effects are mostly due to changes in appetite. Maybe yeah. we should study that. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, you know, maybe the effects on metabolism aren't as great as we initially thought. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't, yeah. by and large, the response. People just need to find a way to dismiss something that doesn't match up with what they think. Right. And yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's, it's fascinating. There's yeah. a fascinating psychology involved. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, what about industry? Did you get any anything back from, you know, the uh, say meat producers or dairy producers no, or I haven't heard anything from, no from that or uh, like the Atkins or nope. no nothing, nothing from that okay. nothing about that no well I assumed you would have got something from that so that's interesting that yeah you, you didn't no it's hear. Yeah. pretty much been individuals some yeah. scientists some you know pretend scientists yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who uh, who've been very uh, vocal but yeah. but yeah nothing nothing from industry yeah okay yeah. interesting that's cool. Um, Unless you consider, you know, authors in the book industry <laughs> as being yeah, industry. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. certainly people who... No, uh, I more meant like industry yeah. representatives, Understood. like CEOs of companies yeah. or nothing like, like that. that. Yeah, no. yeah. yeah. So, all right. Well, that, like I said, was totally, totally fascinating. Um, one of the studies that you didn't talk about in your talk that I saw was, and I looked up your uh, profile on the NIH website, was a, a study about dopamine. Mm-hmm. Um, that's particularly interesting to me because I, I've got a history of depression, and uh, so I'm, I'm really interested in, uh, yeah, that uh, and my addiction. Obviously, like I, I did the potato thing to try to beat my addiction, and 
so yeah, it's really interesting to me about that effect, the dopamine effect, the pleasure centers in the brain being triggered by food and how that has an addictive <coughs> effect. So can we talk about that one? Sure, too? sure. I'm happy to. So, you know, one of the, again, this was one of the things I like to do in my career is always sort of push myself to areas that I'm uncomfortable with, right? So that's kind of yeah. how you move from physics to sort of yeah, nutrition I love that metabolism. Attitude, yeah. And so, again, one of the nice things about being at the NIH is that um, there are so many great scientists who have expertise in lots of different areas. And so, for example, when I realized that we were doing this first study where we're bringing these folks in for a pair of um, two-week visits, we thought, we can measure so many things on these folks. Mm. You know, even if they're not the really primary thing that we're interested in, I can collaborate with somebody yeah. to look at things that I know very little about um, that might be interesting. And, and So this all happened at the same time? Yes. Right. So I, only, are, I only had time to read the abstract, so I didn't... Yeah, yeah. Get, yeah. Get, yeah um, so yeah, you might not quite realize these yeah. are the same folks who wow, participated okay. in the reduced carb and reduced fat diet. Yeah. And, and a bunch of other controls who were not obese. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, there's been this really interesting research relating um, this uh, neurotransmitter dopamine um, to addiction and, and, to, um, and to motivation and, uh, and learning. And more recently, uh, related to obesity. And... Uh, I was very interested in the potential to study this and to learn these new techniques of uh, what's called neuroimaging, basically yeah. looking at the brain and the function of the brain and, and, and in particular, this, this, this chemical dopamine. And so um, there have been studies that in the past that had looked at um, variations in how many dopamine receptors, like the, the things that dopamine binds to, to, yeah. to generate its signal, where they're located in the brain and how they vary with uh, people with addiction. Uh, people um, and also people uh, with obesity and so basically just because we could I yeah. said well let's let's measure That's great because yeah, like, you, you obviously it's going to be hard to get people to agree to go into the, exactly. the metabolic ward so while you've got them there exactly you, you can test all these other things yeah <laughs> that was not? the idea yeah. right so so we we got these folks to agree to um, get these um, PET scans positron emission tomography scans uh, where we uh, inject a, a, um, a chemical in their blood, which then goes to the brain, binds to these dopamine receptors, and gives off the signal that we can detect, yeah. and um, tells us where they're binding and how strongly they're, uh, you know, how much of these, how many of these receptors are there, essentially. And, um, and we were really interested because one of the things that we found was we uh, we were able to show that there was actually a relationship between the binding of these um, dopamine receptors in key parts of the brain called the dorsal and lateral striatum. Um, these are regions of the brain that have been previously involved uh, or implicated in habitual behaviors. Yeah. So, um, and we know that dopamine plays a role in habits because in animal models, for example, if you block dopamine activity um, you can actually block the development of, of habits. So when you get an okay. animal, generally the way this works is that you get an animal to um, perform some action because it wants some reward. Yeah, so if you block the reward, it, then... Well, yeah, yeah. so it's, it's an interesting question. Yeah. If it, is it you're blocking the reward or yeah. you're blocking... Because one of the things that we know is that 
the reward part operates in a certain region of the brain. Yeah. And then as the animal kind of learns about that this relationship between what they're doing and the reward that they're getting, um, they kind of start to bypass that. They, they, oh, actually, okay. they actually start to relate not just to the reward, they actually get the dopamine whenever the cue comes. This is the Pavlov idea, yeah, right? Yeah. So uh, it's no longer the actual giving the dog the meat that causes the salivation. It's the yeah. ringing of the bell. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the sh the dopamine actually shifts to the ringing of the bell, not to the ah, not to the right, reward. Yeah. And so, if you keep doing that over and over again, and the animal actually has to perform some activity, that dopamine um, is playing a, a role in different parts of the brain. It's moving it away from these reward areas to these habit areas. Yeah. So okay. they, you actually don't even need to think about it anymore. You just yeah. get the cue, you do the thing, and you and, and you and you get the reward, so to speak. And suddenly you've eaten half a chocolate cake. And and and, and most <laughs> without thinking about and it. And most interestingly, you don't even need the reward anymore. Yeah. The way I like to think about it is, um, how many times have I had the power go out in my house, which happens yeah. unfortunately, you know, more frequently than I'd like. Yeah. And it's nighttime, and I walk into a room and I flick the light switch. I know the power's out. Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, but yeah. I still do it because this is a pattern of behavior that has been repeated so many times in the past that I have not learned, and I consciously know that the power's out. Yeah. Um, everywhere else it's dark, and I walk into a room from one dark room to another, and I flick the switch. Yeah. It's automatic. Or you've got a bowl of chips and you keep yeah. reaching into the empty bowl even that's, though you know you've finished it. That's, yeah, that's, that's the, the same idea, right? It's yeah. habitual. You, you have, a, you know, for example, if television is often a, a cue for people to eat snacks yeah. and, and if they do that repeatedly, then they're, they might not even be getting the reward from the snack anymore, right? I, don't, yeah. I didn't get the reward from flicking the light switch because the light didn't come on and yet 15 minutes later, I'll probably do exactly the same thing again in another room. Yeah. It's habitual. And yeah. we know that it, in animal models, if you block dopamine's activity in this region of the brain, the dorsal and lateral striatum, you can actually block the development of these habits. Yeah. And you can actually reverse previous habits. Okay. So one of the things that we were really interested in is that we found that um, people uh, who had a higher body fat ended up having more dopamine receptors um, in this region of the brain that's associated with habits. Yeah. And... More interestingly, when we actually assess their eating behavior, um, the things that motivate what, um, what drives their food intake. So you can think of maybe people eat when they're hungry. That's yeah. one aspect. Um, uh, people also might be trying to cognitively restrain what they're eating. They're trying to be good and diet or yeah. whatever. But there's another factor um, that, that drives food intake behavior, and that's your responsivity to cues in your environment, right? The fact that you can't walk by your local coffee shop without going in to get you yeah. know a pastry or something like that because you're you're just very responsive to these cues yeah. um especially if it's a daily <clears throat> thing like if every day on your way to work you go past this coffee shop and get a pastry exactly that's then, the habit part right yeah and so what we found was that not only did um did uh, body fat correlate with these dopamine regions but that form of eating that we call opportunistic eating behavior um, also correlated with these dopamine receptors in this part of the brain. And, um, you know, so you can, it's interesting, in neuroscience, we like to pretend we understand these things, and, um, but, and we tell stories about what these data mean, and yeah. they're really just hypotheses. But yeah. one hypothesis is 
that folks who happen to have a larger number of receptors available in this part of the brain are more susceptible to how dopamine is shifting them towards this habitual eating yeah. behavior. And um, that's why it's correlated with both body fatness and this opportunistic behavior. And in fact, we can tease apart that there's still, even if, because this kind of eating behavior also predicts body fatness. So yeah. you might say, well, what's really related to each other? Yeah. When we actually try to subtract statistically out the effects of the body fatness per se, this, this effect of the eating behavior is still there in terms of the dopamine. Okay. So, um, and then interestingly, if you look at that part of the brain that was responsive to reward that, that I told you about, you might not even yeah. get the reward anymore. In certain, certain parts of that uh, brain region, you can actually see that there's less dopamine available. Ah, oh, okay. So, so the idea might be that initially people are eating to get the reward. They're, get, they're developing these patterns, which is rewarding, which is, you know, that's one of the reasons this system is there to begin with. Yeah, Sex is course. rewarding. Yeah. You, you do it to procreate, and food is rewarding for a reason. But yeah. once you generate those behaviors in a reliable way, you don't need them to be rewarding anymore. Yeah. And in fact, um, one of the things that people with addiction often describe is that initially when they're in this pattern, yes, they're getting this high from the, the drug that they're, eat, that they're consuming. Mm. But after a while, they're consuming the drug not for the high, but to eliminate the, feel, the poor feelings that they yeah. have with not yeah. getting the drug. Yeah. And their behaviors are very conditioned on cues in their environment. So if they see the friends that they formerly did drugs with, that's going to lead them down a path of, yeah. of doing this. And it's going to be very difficult to resist. Um, and other folks have I actually think that that's um, a part of why the potato thing worked for me was because I didn't have to go to the, to the supermarket anymore mm -hmm. and walk past those aisles. I used to get my junk from, right. I just went to the, the local fruit and vegetable shop. I didn't even look at any of the other food. I just went in there and got a box of potatoes and went home. So yeah. I didn't have a lot of cues from going and doing the shopping and stuff. Right. And so you re-engineered yeah. your environment yeah. and your available choices yeah. such that those old triggers were less common. Yeah. Sometimes I even got the potatoes delivered to my home so I didn't have to go there anywhere go. to get right. anything. And right. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that this is where, you know, eventually my research is, is going is, yeah. is to try to better understand how the brain is responding to these to different kinds of diets and yeah. different kinds of patterns and what's uh, you know it's interesting again one of the things that um, you know if you take a, a thousand foot view of where my research has gone I would say that you know initially I was very interested and still are I'm very interested in this me these metabolic aspects and these changes in calorie expenditure and and which fuels are providing those calories but I actually think that most of the story of obesity and treatment of obesity isn't doesn't have anything to do with mm. that. It's mostly about what foods you choose, why you choose those foods, how you eat, why you eat, yeah. um, what are the things in the food environment that are influencing those things. And those things are not taking place in muscle yeah. and liver and whatnot. That, that we can but agree on. Those are taking yeah. place in the brain. Before last year, I would have <clears throat> disagreed, but with my experience over the last year i'm i'm 100 with you that it's all about what's going on in your head uh, well maybe not all but right. a big percentage of yeah. it is about what's going on in your head yeah. and and we're getting signals from the body that are influencing that yeah. and there's different reasons that people are eating there's you know obviously you have to consume enough calories to survive you have to consume enough of the right 
you know, the right nutrients to survive. But, um, but there are other factors which are, have, you know, maybe had less emphasis, these factors that we've been talking about, about habits and yeah, because most people, maybe they don't know exactly what a good diet is, but everyone knows you should eat lots of vegetables, right? Like, yeah, there's, and everyone, there seems to be some general, agreement yeah, on that. And, and everyone knows that a deep fried Mars bar is not a good idea, but <laughs> every people, once in a while it might not be so bad, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, you should not subsist on deep fried but, Mars bars. But yeah, but, well, what I'm saying is that people who are obese, yeah. generally, I think know that they're eating bad foods, but they do it anyway, mm-hmm. even though they know it's harmful for them. So yeah, if we can figure out why and, you and know, how to make those changes, then that's, that's a big thing. I think that that's where, you know, a lot of research needs to be invested and, yeah. and, and better understand why it is that, you know, when you do prescribe, I mean, for example, there would be another person who might look a heck of a lot like you and you prescribe them the potato diet and they're like, I can't do this. Yeah. Right? This, is n- this is not something. And so is it something about, that person's social interactions that prevent that or yeah. is it something in their brain or yeah. what what is it there's a whole I, lot of different factors exactly yeah, so. so so that's i think that that's really interesting and yeah. and it's one of the things that that's we're interested in studying um and and how changes in diet and ch- specific changes actually impact the brain yeah. differently in different people and whether or not there are you know effects that you can say actually happen in you know most people or on yeah. average in most people so, so yeah, so the other part of that study um, that hasn't come out yet, what hopefully will come out in this year, is um, that we have looked to see how these dopamine uh, receptors are actually altered in the reduced carb versus reduced fat diets. Oh, okay, yeah. And I'll just give you a little tease, is yeah. that they're affected very differently. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay, interesting. All right, well, I'm looking forward <laughs> to hearing that then. Okay. All right, well, we're nearly, we're nearly time to wrap up, but All I've right, got a great. couple more questions. Sure. Um, I know that this is not your job and it's, yeah. Yeah, but I have to ask anyway, do you have thoughts on what the best diet is? Uh, about I mean, I have thoughts yeah. just like everybody has yeah. thoughts on these ideas, but yeah. um, I would, I would, and a lot of them kind of go into what you were saying. I mean, I think that, you know, no one's going to argue that, or not very few people are going to argue that fruits and vegetables and, and whatnot are, are, are probably going to form a large part of yeah. a healthy diet. Um, but you know, at the same time, I recognize that there's, there is a, you know, a gap in the scientific evidence really showing that, you know, who are going to be most beneficially affected by certain kinds of diets around these, around these, um, base factors. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, it's interesting when I talk to, uh, folks in the low carb community versus folks in the plant-based nutrition community, all of them will tell me, you know, very strong opinions about why they think yeah. their diet is best, why it's, you know, clear to them that this is the truth. And they'll point me to a few studies here and there. Yeah. Um, but the kind of rigorous, you know, study where we actually know that people consume these diets on, uh, and, and we know that they ate them. They didn't kind of veer off course and, um, what the long-term effects are, uh, those kinds of studies are not currently available. Yeah. Well, that leads to my next question. I was, you're not, uh, as far as I know in, wouldn't, you wouldn't call yourself to be in either camp of a low carb or, or a whole food plant based. You, 
uh, I don't know exactly what your diet is, yeah. but <laughs> we're at, we've been at the McDougal conference and you right. don't eat the McDougal way, but you're right. not a low carber either. So the next question was what, what kind of science would you need to see to convince you that one way or the other was the best way to eat? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? So if, the the kind of science that needs to be done to really definitively answer that question is the kind of science that's probably not going to be done for very practical reasons. Yeah. Um, so so unfortunately, we're left with the, the 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 problem that what I'd like to do if I had unlimited funds is I'd like to set up some community somewhere where people had no access to outside food, where they could live and and thrive and or potentially you know yeah. do their work for you know a, a year or two at yeah. a time and we could control everything and measure everything that they ate yeah and we could design the kinds of experiments that are really required to look at longer term outcomes of different diets um that's not likely to happen anytime soon yeah um you know i i don't think i've been able to convince any multi-billionaires yeah. to, <laughs> to let me start that that, yeah, that, that yeah. kind of enterprise and i don't know how successful i'd be at getting people to live in yeah. that way um especially if i randomize them to some diet yeah. <laughs> they have to consume for yeah, the next yeah. several years so barring that kind of study what we have to do is we have to make the best decisions that we can given the current evidence right yeah and a lot of those decisions are right now based on epidemiological evidence or cohort studies of people who have either been exposed to certain diets and certain yeah. outcomes and have had either success or failure, or we've been using our limited tools available to ask questions like, you know, what were you eating? And then we'll follow you up for a while. Or what were you eating and how healthy are you now? That's basically what it comes down to. And, um, those data are are interesting and 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 fascinating and tend to support the kinds of things that you're talking about about there's a commonality about you know lots of fresh fruit vegetables beans yeah. um but also people will argue lots of olive oil yeah might be beneficial um relatively high protein for some things but yeah. not for other things that perhaps the kind the, the source of the protein is important um, and, and you get these mixed, that's where you start getting the mixed messages, right? Yeah. And it's, I think based on the fact that there's differences between these people that we're looking at in these cohort studies, if you're looking at people in Japan, for example, or Okinawa, there's a certain, you know, effect of just them being different yeah. genetic background than other folks. And there's a, there's an effect of, um, you know, just the fact that we can't measure these things as well as we'd yeah. like. Yeah. So we have to make choices yeah. and we don't have the best data to do that. But what seems to be in common with a lot of these programs, I mean, I think David Katz does a pretty good job of ass assessing the data, although I'd probably disagree with him about the strength of the conclusions, yeah. but he can look at um, all of these, these different diets and say, uh, most of the things that are recommended for health are limited in processed foods yeah. that focus on whole fresh foods. Yeah. Um, a lot of people will agree on that. And you can make a ketogenic, low-carb, whole fresh food diet. Yeah. Um, and you can also make a high-starch, low-fat, uh, whole food, uh, plant-based diet. And whether or not there are any differences <laughs> between those two approaches in terms yeah. of long-term health, we don't know the answer to that yeah. question. Yeah. All right. So has your research actually 
resulted in any changes in the way you personally eat? Or is that- <laughs> um, I would say that my research has had less impact on wh- how I eat than getting married and having yeah. kids <laughs> has had on, yeah. on how I eat. I get <laughs> I mean, that, I think, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. so I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can relate to that. Okay. <laughs> Uh, last question, uh, have you got any goals or what's next for you? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so one of the studies that um, I'm actually presenting to our ethics review board at the end of this month that I'm, I'm really excited about and we'll probably see a, a, a register on clinicaltrials.gov for in the next couple of months is a study where we bring people again to the metabolic ward at the NIH and we... Um, we match, it's again a random order, one month, a pair of one month stays, uh, and they will have the same amount of calories, same amount of carbohydrates, fat, protein, sugar, fiber, and salt. And yeah. one will be entirely composed of whole unprocessed foods, and the other will be entirely composed of ultra processed foods. Okay. And we're looking at metabolic health. Yeah. Um, factors um, using very sophisticated methods to look at multi-organ insulin sensitivity and uh, a liver triglyceride accumulation, yeah. uh, coronary artery thickness, very sophisticated measures over a relatively short period of time to really assess this question of, like I mentioned, is, is it is it even the level of processing yeah, which is yeah. important? That's, that's going to be really interesting. How, how are you going to control... In the, in the whole foods thing, I'm guessing it's not whole food plant-based. It's whole, just whole foods. So. Yeah, so there's, obvi- uh, yeah. there's going to be some fresh meat involved yeah. in that as well. But yeah, yeah. so that will, that will involve some fresh meat. It will, it will be, it'll have a lot of fruits and vegetables. Yeah. The other diet will have almost no fruits and vegetables. Yeah, yeah. But um, so you might think, oh, well, how do yeah. you get as much fiber in the yeah, ultra process? Yeah, that was my next question. Yeah. So, so we'll give a fiber supplement. Yeah. Um, right. So a, a manufactured fiber supplement. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's the idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's going to be really, really interesting. Yeah. So you have to wait for yeah. a, a few years probably till we yeah, finish okay. that one. But yeah. Uh, but yeah. So it's going to be it's going to be a fun one. We're pretty excited about it. All right. Well, maybe if the podcast's still going, then <laughs> we can uh, talk about it then. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. I've learned a lot from this chat as well as from your talk yesterday and uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to sit down with you for a little while and, and learn some more so well, thanks for having me thank you and thank you for the work you do and um yeah well hopefully we'll see you again sometime sounds good thanks <laughs> all right spot up <laughs> Uh, dropping some knowledge on us dropping some science on us uh, helping us to oh you might be able to hear some fighter jets flying overhead the Australian Grand Prix is happening a, a couple of kilometers away and there's some uh, big uh, F-18 fighters instruments of death flying overhead <laughs> just uh, trying to show their stuff to um, to the Grand Prix fans That's pretty loud. I don't know if you can hear it, but I can. Anyway, uh, if you liked that episode, then please share it with your friends. Uh, if you want to talk about it, then hit me up on social media, SpudFit at Instagram and on Facebook. And uh, yeah, just don't forget to leave uh, to subscribe to that on iTunes and also to leave a review. That would be most helpful. And I'd appreciate it a lot. Uh, 
All right, next week's guest is going to be Dustin Rudolph, the plant-based pharmacist. That was also an excellent conversation and another uh, amazing and interesting guy that I met at the uh, Advanced Study Weekend. Oh, there it is again. Those jets are... I might... No, I was thinking I might retake this when the jets are stopped, but uh, let's let it go. It'll be okay. All right, that's it for today. Uh, Thanks for listening. Again, you can... uh, you can sign up for the newsletter if you like at www.spudfit.com. Uh, I promise not to spam you. I'll just send you information about what I'm doing and when I'm doing it. And uh, yeah, don't forget to uh, check out the DIY Spud Fit Challenge. You can find that on my website and you can also find it on amazon.com. Thanks everyone. Spud up. <laughs>